Hello, and welcome to Left, Right, and Sideways. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ruben Sigmund. To my left is Jonah Klein-Barton. How's it going? And to my right is Max Handler. Hello, all. And Sideways is Sam Klein. What's up? All right, so today on the pod, first, Jonah is going to talk about sensationalization of violence in the media. Sam is going to lead the discussion on principal loyalty in the government. And Max is going to talk a little bit about the intersection of religion, politics, and the law. sensationalization of violence in the media. Yeah, so this is something that I was thinking about a lot this weekend with the protests going on in St. Louis and how coverage of them has been uh, different within local media and national media. Local media has been taking a lot of effort to carefully describe what is happening, giving, while still like succumbing to the needs of the 24-hour news cycle, making sure to describe in detail and nuance what is going on, looking at both peaceful protests and the few violent events that have happened, while national news has focused almost entirely on the few violent conflicts that have broken out. Um, And I think that it really does a disservice to the community members who have shown up to protest, because the national news is characterizing them as this violent mob rather than the peaceful active community that they are uh, to all outside the St. Louis area. I agree. I think it's very unfortunate. It is regressive. It's bad for society when uh, the news distorts, especially at a national level, um, you know, peaceful and righteous protest. Um, I, I just wonder the extent to which that's an inevitability given kind of, if not the American mindset, the human mindset and our desire for sensationalism, as long as there's a market for that, um, whoever provides it is going to lead, and, and certain news outlets do provide that, that are often in, in, in the lead, and then others that don't may, aren't going to survive as well because not as many people are, are interested in, in the kind of peaceful right protest. Yeah, so I think while there is that financial incentive, it's still morally reprehensible and completely wrong to sensationalize violence because that actually promotes violence. Like, that actually contributes to the creation of violence in our society, and we shouldn't accept that. Yeah, I mean, I I would disagree very strongly with that. Um, I understand to some degree, right, you're responding to the images you see in the media, but at the end of the day, who bears responsibility for my actions? I do. If I see people violently protesting in the TV, right, that shouldn't change whether or not I fundamentally believe certain things. Even if I have a certain perception of what society is that's flawed, that shouldn't affect morally whether or not it's okay to commit violence. Just because there are protesters out there committing violence does not therefore make it okay for me to do so. And I think that your view is endorsing, I think, an abdication of personal responsibility. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that that's the argument Ruben was making. I think that the argument was that by the media choosing to cover violent acts rather than peaceful ones, the media is changing the incentive structure around protest. And with the idea of protest being to gain attention, 
if the media is ensuring that the only way to gain attention is to become violent, then that changes the incentive structure and makes peaceful protest while something that people might say they want to hear um, not necessarily have as much of an impact. But wouldn't that then go both ways, right? If you're saying the only, right, they've changed the incentive structure such that only violent protest is going to get covered. But, right, the incentive structure for them is they're only going to get viewers if they cover violent protests. So if you're saying it's therefore wrong for them to cover these violent protests, then isn't it also wrong for people to continue committing that violence? Like, you're, you're, I feel like you're just kind of passing the blame here. Yeah, well, that goes back to my original point, which was that I think it's on the American people and, and the consumers of, of sensational uh, media. And, and as long as there's a market for this stuff, there, yes, it's, it's morally reprehensible to distort, uh, you know, protest and, 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 and disproportionately cover violent protest. But, you know, there's an old adage in, in the news that, uh, you know, dog bites man is not a story and man bites dog is a story because it's the abnormal. And so that's what's going to draw more viewers. So, yeah, I just want to push back on it because I want to look at it more, not just on the individual, but as a whole system, because it also creates a level of fear in our society. And that's important in creating violence and creating unsafety and increasing kind of the reaction by the government. And like you said, it's a disproportionate amount. And I think the news, responsible, morally right news, has, has a duty as part of being a journalist to cover things evenly and how the events are actually happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially as it comes into protest, because so much can happen with a police response, and so much of that can be changed by what the police think that they're going to be encountering. And if you have a news source that's saying there is going to be heavy amounts of violence, protesters are all just a large mob, they're trying to be violent, they're trying to destroy things, the police response is going to come prepared to counter that. Whereas if you had a more accurate depiction where you have people peacefully marching and, sure, being disruptive because they're taking action, but doing so peacefully, doing so as respectful members of their community, I think that that would actually change the police action in response. I, I just, this kind of, I, I agree that, you know, that, that that's definitely a, a symptom. I guess this is more of a normative point. And it goes back to what Max says, which is that I, I sure hope the police aren't judging their response based on what they see on TV. Um, I, I would hope that with the tons of money from state and federal governments that they have for communication systems and helicopters and all these things, and, and you know, that, that they can they can respond more more responsibly than that. I would I would say I'm with you in that I hope they would do that. Right, they don't. Um, yeah. Right, like as absurd as it is to think that I very much doubt that the police are doing a lot of the kind of groundwork that they should be doing um, to make sure that their responses to protests are at are uh, proportionate. I think would be the right word. Um, and you talk about the funding that they get. The funding that they get, yeah, some of it goes to communication. A lot of it goes to tanks and other various things that they really don't need. Um, and so I, I think that. To me, uh, I would be surprised if police were really relying on anything other than... I, I, to some degree, I even doubt that they're relying on the news media. I think that they're coming in prepared for a fight. Yeah, and I think that part of that is 
because of, and Ruben had mentioned this briefly before, I think, it's not that they're responding directly maybe to what the news media is saying, but that there's this whole culture of expecting fear, expecting violence from protesters, whether or not they're peaceful, that is engendered by years and years of media coverage of it like this. Okay, so next up, Sam Klein leading the discussion on loyalty and serving in the government. Yeah, you know, th this weekend a lot of interesting, let's call it intelligence from, from the government came out. Sean Spicer did an interview on Jimmy Kimmel where he, in effect, implied that he would go out there and knowingly lie to the press corps and to the American people um, because that's what his job was to do. He was the spokesman for the president. And Steve Bannon on 60 Minutes, slightly more negative tack, said effectively the same thing. He, he said if Gary Cohn doesn't like the president's response to Char Charlottesville, he's on the president's team and he should... He should resign if he doesn't like it, but not speak out against it while he's on the team. And then the final example uh, was Ivanka Trump in the, of course, a, a senior advisor of the president, in the Financial Times saying similar things about, about that. So, so the question that I want to open up to the group is to what extent do these people have an obligation to dissent publicly? I just want to applaud you for not making the easy joke about intelligence coming from the Trump government. Uh, that was, you could have gone there and you didn't, and I'm proud of you. Thank you. It was in there. So I want to speak to the question at hand, and I think that actually you have a responsibility to leave the government, to offer your letter of resignation when what you're asked to do conflicts with your, your morals and your conscience. And people always say, I serve at the pleasure of the president, but first I think you, you serve to whatever degree that your conscience allows you to do. When it when that conflicts with the president, you say, I'm willing to resign. You make that clear where you stand. And these people haven't, and that's why Trump's been able to walk all over them. And that's why we hear so many murmurs of Gary Cohen's upset, he's going to resign. You know, Jared and Ivanka are really upset, but no action. I just, I would, where, where's your line there, right? Because I, I, you obviously you can't mean possibly that any time you have a moral objection to anything that the president does, or maybe you do, if you have any level of moral objection to something the president does, you ought to resign. Uh, but so where where do you personally think the line is? At what level do you think you can't cross this line, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think everybody obviously has their own sort of line, and it's not, you know, little moral... Thing. It's like not little decisions. It's not, you know, what is the president serving for lunch or minor policy disputes. It's when you, you feel bad, you're conscious that you are going to hurt more people than you think you can help by serving in government. Yeah, so I think that it becomes really interesting, especially when you're talking about working in a governmental job versus working in any job where you your morals might conflict with what your job responsibilities are. Because it's an incredibly privileged thing to be able to say, oh, I just won't take any job that conflicts with any part of my moral code because the way our system is set up, people need a job to work. And so I'm wondering if you think that there should be a different standard when you're working in government to when you're working, this isn't just to Ruben, this is to the whole group, when you're working in government to when you're working in, say, the private sector. Well, 
I, I think I think yes. I, I think absolutely. If you're if you are the spokesman for the leader of the United States and of I would say the free world, I think you do have a higher obligation. Now that isn't to say that we should have expected Sean Spicer to walk out on day one when uh, right before he walked out on the podium, Trump said lie about the crowd size at, at, at the inauguration. But but I agree that there has to be a, a reasonable window when it really affects your conscience. So two points. One, actually, I think he should. If you're, the first thing you say is press secretary is a lie, you diminish all credibility and trust with the press. And I think that was a huge problem for the rest of Spicer's tenure. And then second, to go off your point, I think when you serve in the government, you don't just serve at the behest of the president, but you serve the people of the United States of America, and that is another level of moral responsibility that you have. I understand what you're saying, and I, I find Sean Spicer odious, and I find a lot of the people in the Trump administration odious, but my concern, right, is if you're saying, look, you have to resign if the president is telling you to do things you know to be morally wrong. Who's left in that administration, right? At the end of the day, you're going to get an administration that, first of all, is an echo chamber, which I think is bad. You're, and I mean, that would, would have been true in the Obama administration. It would have been true in the Bush administration if people had just resigned whenever they felt that something was wrong. Uh, and I, I think that it's really, really bad to have an administration that is an echo chamber. You need dissenting voices. And I think you need dissenting voices more than ever in the Trump administration. Because if you do not have people who disagree with him, you will allow people like Steve Bannon and all of those people who read Breitbart and think it's great, that will become the administration. And if you think it's bad now, imagine how bad it will be if you actually get competent people who believe the things that Trump supposedly believes in office. So, right, that's the argument that we've been hearing. But where is the difference between an administration of yes-men and an administration of people whose line of reasoning seems to be like, oh, this is bad, but I'll do it anyways because I'm going to stay in the administration? Because they're, because they're not doing it anyways, right? The, the amount of stuff that the Trump administration has been able to do is much less than it could have been if everybody were on board. Well, I, I think the difference is, is you look no further than Secretary of Defense Mattis. It, he, it's not like a hard, it's more of a soft pressure negotiation, but if, you, if, if, if Mattis quit when he, he found Charlottesville, I'm sure, objectionable, um, then we would have, like, yeah, obviously the, the, the press secretary isn't as impactful as the Secretary of Defense, but like, the, these have real consequences. So I think there is some exception when you talk about the military and defense with Mattis. I think that's like a really interesting debate. But I think in the larger context, we have to look at other things. And like Jonas said, I'm not sure how much worse the policy would be with those people. And I think also that there is a difference between having a policy dispute, like you're saying in like Obama, Bush administrations, versus really these larger moral decisions where there's just clear evil, in my opinion. See, I'm going to respond to the Mattis one differently because he's somebody who has actually taken a stand and said, like, no, we will not be doing these things. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who actually not only voices disagreement, but then acts on that disagreement. So I think that if you're talking about Mattis, you're talking about a completely different case of person. I, I would agree. I think Mattis is a good example and a good example of why even if you think something is objectionable, you shouldn't leave. Um, you should stay and fight it, and I think Mattis has probably lost some battles, but he's probably won more than he's lost, and I think that it's important that someone like him stays in the administration. Uh, but in terms of what policies would be worse, I mean, look at DACA, right? 
Trump said that he's going to repeal it, you know, and it's going to end in six months or whatever. Like, he could have just taken that away. He could have done that, you know, right away. If, if, if the administration were full of Stephen Millers, right, do you think DACA would have even lasted that long? Yes, I would push back on this completely. I think that it was not the pressure from Ivanka and all of those people that allowed him to do this six months, you know, wait and then repeal. I think it was the pressure from outside groups, from the people, from but, but Chuck who, and Nancy, as he likes to call who them. Who is that pressure affecting, though? Right? Yes, to some degree that pressure affects Trump, but if you have people around him, right, because Trump is going to, he's going to go with whoever the last person he talked to was. That's just how he operates. The, the last person he talks to is, you know, Chuck and Nancy. He's going to go with them. I don't but if you that. have a, peep, a, a bunch of yes men, not even yes men, because I don't think that Trump really has a lot of policies people would say yes to. If you have a lot of people who are true believers in Trumpism, I think they would not have cared at all about press coverage, and I think that you would have seen DACA gone. Yeah. Jono with the last word? I think that on that, you're just misattributing who had that influence. I don't think it was people within his administration. I think it was concern from, as Ruben said, outside groups, but then also Republican congressional leadership, people who he has to work with whether or not he likes it, people who are worried about its effect on their 2018 chances. Okay, and for our last section, Max is going to lead a discussion on the intersection of religion, politics, and the law. Take it away. Yeah, thank you, Ruben. So there were two really main incidents recently that I think have been uh, particularly interesting to me. Uh, the first one, chronologically, uh, was Donald Trump nominated this guy named Russell Vogt, uh, I may be mispronouncing that, uh, as the Deputy Director for the Office of uh, Management and Budget. And Bernie Sanders, in his questioning, brought up an article that uh, Russell Vogt had written uh, after a controversy at uh, Russell Vogt's alma mater, Wheaton College, which is an evangelical college, uh, and this Trump nominee is a practicing evangelical. Uh, long story short, essentially, in the article, uh, this nominee basically said that he believes that uh, he did, essentially uh, Muslims do not know God, was roughly the quote that he had. Uh, and that he believes that people who are not of his faith, people who are not evangelical Christians, uh, will not... Should I just shorten this? Just Christians. Uh, yeah, he essentially said that Christians uh, will, will not get salvation in the afterlife. Uh, and Senator Sanders attacked this statement and he called it Islamophobic. Uh, a somewhat, on a somewhat similar vein, uh, judge, uh, or not judge, potential judge Amy Barrett uh, was nominated by Trump to fill a federal judgeship and she was questioned over a law review article that she had written in which she, should su she suggested that in some cases Catholics should recuse themselves from cases uh, in a very narrow range of cases when their religious beliefs would potentially lead them to do different things. Uh, the Barrett one was a little bit more of an open question for me, but personally, as both a Jew and an American, I was deeply, deeply disturbed by Senator Sanders' questioning. Uh, of the Trump nominee, and I, I think it sets a very dangerous precedent. I think the, the Barrett one is a more compelling case for us to, to discuss because it's a bit more of a fine line. I believe the quote um, that she had written in, in her article for the Law Review is that it would be impossible for a observant practicing Catholic to, to adjudicate a case involving a, 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 an issue that was morally 
um, against Catholic values. And I think with such a, a quote that she clearly thoughtfully wrote and, and published in a law review, I don't think it is, it is a religious test for a senator uh, to ask her at her confirmation hearing whether she would, as a judge, adjudicate those cases. I think that's a very reasonable question, given that she has said that it would be impossible to do so. I, I think the question itself is reasonable, but just to point out, the law review article is really not as bad as people have made it sound. I'm reading here from a quote uh, in the law review article, Amy Barrett wrote, judges cannot nor should they try to align our legal system with the church's moral teaching whenever the two diverge. And at her hearing, she very clearly stated that she does not believe that you should allow, you should make judicial rulings based on your religion. And I think that what's really disturbing to me wasn't necessarily that the question was asked, it was the depth that was gone into on it and the way that it was worded. I believe the Dianne Feinstein quote was, the dogma is very strong in you. And I think that especially when you look at what Bernie Sanders did in questioning someone for essentially expressing what is a very mainstream evangelical Christian belief, I think that a lot of Democrats really are uncomfortable with Christians holding public office. And I think that that's a serious problem. So I think we need to separate these for a second because that's a lot. And so regarding your first point about Professor Barrett, I think that the questions may have had like a hostility and intensity that was perhaps not the best, but I think it is very, very important to have the separation of religion and state, especially regarding judges, somebody who's going to participate in the basic structure and hand down and interpret the law. And so to get at and ask if it's unclear what her stance is on that, for whatever reason, I'm not going to go into whatever she wrote, but I think it's perfectly fine to ask, will you bring in your own religious values and interpretations, or will you interpret the Constitution as it well, that's, is written in the Constitution? That's absolutely not what they were asking. They were not asking, will you interpret the Constitution the way it was written, because that's not how they believe the Constitution should not the be way interpreted. It, I'll respond to that, but first, Jonah? Yeah, so I think that this is something that it is important to ask about. It is important to see, give somebody the chance to talk on how they will interpret when they're being nominated for a position that they will serve in, especially one that they'll serve in for the rest of their life. This is going to be a position that will have impact on countless amounts of people, and it's a position that I think it's in the best interest of the American populace to get a sense of whether the person nominated will be able to judge according to the law, especially when it's something that they wrote, they raised themselves in the past. I'm not saying that being like devoutly religious of any religion should ever be a barrier to holding any office. Obviously, that's wrong. But I think it is something that is fair to ask about in a nomination. Again, I will go back to the Bernie Sanders one. Bernie Sanders very clearly believed that this person, believing very strongly in their religion and speaking openly about it, was a barrier to them holding a position and in And I'm saying office. I disagree with that. <laughs> I, First of all, the, playing off of what everyone has said, we have never had a separation of church and state in this country. Separation of church and state isn't actually in the Constitution. We just have a disestablishment clause uh, that says that you can't, there will be no official religion, you cannot pass a law preventing the free exercise of religion. Um, what I think is, is, was more compelling was Max's earlier statement about 
how Democrats don't like Christians in, in, in government. And I think it would be very hard to be a Democrat in this country if you felt that way, seeing as you can't walk into a courtroom or into the halls of Congress without seeing in God, or pick up a dollar bill without seeing in God we trust, um, other, you know, monotheistic um, Judeo-Christian and Christian-specific imagery. And, 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 and so I think every, every president we've ever had has been a Christian. Um, I, I, think that, I think that's just, that, that's total hyperbole that's, that's toxic to the conversation. I just need to cut in because I hate the term Judeo-Christian. It's only used to be like, oh, it's not just Christians doing this. Jews are responsible for it as well. Fair. Continue. Good point. Okay, so I think what the question really gets into is how comfortable are we as a society, not just Democrats, okay with true pluralism, where we acknowledge that we don't really have any unique claims to the truth, and it, it's that we're not, that we have this misperception that we can all respect each other's faiths, but some people, most people in America believe that only people of their faith will achieve salvation in the next life, and yet that doesn't mean that they're bigoted people, it doesn't mean that they mm -hmm. don't treat people equally based, even if they have different beliefs, but that it's right to have different truth claims. And I think we struggle with how to kind of reconcile those two ideas and have like a true pluralism. I, I, I will maintain very strongly, Sam, that the Democratic Party has a serious, serious problem both connect, connecting with Christians with Christian Americans, and a large part of that is because I think a large part, certainly of the, not even just, I think, the intelligentsia of the rank-and-file Democrats in a lot of cases, are truly uncomfortable with religion, and particularly Christian religion. I think that a lot of them, right, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily wrong. I think in some cases there's a fair argument to be made that they equate that with bigotry, and I think the, the, the thing that really kind of cemented this for me was there's a really great article, and I believe he wrote a book by Michael Ware, uh, he was the evangelical advisor to Barack Obama, and there's a really interesting story that he tells where he wanted to insert into an Obama speech this phrase, the least of these, and he capitalized it. It's a quote from the Bible. I'm not Christian. I don't really know what it's about. Um, but he inserted this quote, and every single time an Obama advisor, some other speechwriter, would remove it because they didn't understand what it was. And I think that that's indicative of the fact that for most evangelical Christians, which is the majority of Christians in this country, the Democratic Party doesn't represent them. And I think that if you asked most people in the Democratic Party, do you want to be a party that represents the interests of evangelical Christians, I very much doubt that they would say yes. I, I just think that anecdote only speaks to like Obama's like the, the chain of command for his speechwriters more than anything else. And if you look at Obama's, in my opinion, his best speech, his most one of his most revered speeches, it was a highly you know, evangelical speech with, 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 I wouldn't say evangelical, but it, it was very much in, in, in kind of with Christian motifs and, and, and the idea, it was, it was the uh, eulogy for Clementa Pinckney down in, in Charleston. Um, brilliant speech. And it was very religious. And, and, and I don't think that Democrats per se have a problem connecting with Christians. I think they often have a hard time connecting with with people who, not for their faith, but for their their geography and, and socioeconomic, for, for many reasons, are politically different, but then they also happen to be Christian. And I, I, I struggle to conflate I, those. I just, I have to push back on this so strongly, because if you really talk, if you really talk to a lot of these evangelical Christians, if you really talk to a lot of these religious people, the Democratic Party is poisonous to them. 
they just they just could not imagine a scenario in which they would vote Democratic because the Democratic Party is in a lot of ways very hostile. And I think that these questions are a perfect example. Bernie Sanders cannot handle the fact that an evangelical Christian would believe that people who subscribe to the Muslim faith, while he specifically said this guy that they should be treated the same, he Bernie Sanders could not handle the fact that this person didn't think that those people were going to get salvation. Okay, so i just like to make a statement that not all evangelical Christians are these white, far-right political voters. I think that there's a lot of problems that actually the Republican Party has used them and used wedge issues to polarize them politically. Actually, the former senator from this state, John Danforth, wrote a book about it. Very interesting. I, he gave a talk about it very recently, and I would recommend probably reading it. And also, we need to think about what evangelical Christians are, because there are plenty of black evangelical Christians that are huge supporters of the Democratic Party. And so I think it's important to look holistically in how our politics have used the religious group and also reacted to it. That That's certainly true, and that's a fair point. Uh, what I did want to bring us back to a little bit was to the original point that we were talking about, uh, because I do... We can cut stuff, Sam. It's mine. I know, I know. Um, because there was a point that I really think is very interesting. Um, and... I think everyone here, except for myself, really, has expressed uh, concern with uh, allowing people's religion to influence their rulings, uh, how those things would interact. And I think that part of the fundamental difference is if you are a conservative, it's really not a problem. Because if you're a conservative, then judges should not, obviously, be making rulings based upon their personal beliefs. They should be making rulings based upon the Constitution. The only time this problem really arises is when you subscribe to the idea that the Constitution is not a document with a set meaning. When you believe that the Constitution can now be interpreted and however the judge sees fit, that's when it becomes problematic for a judge to be instituting their own views into the discussion. I will say, when you're saying interpreted as they see fit, it brings up the idea of this wild amount of interpretation. But it is true that whenever anybody reads a document, they have to interpret it on some level. That's why we have judges. That's why we have people who have to read the Constitution. And anybody is going to bring their lived experience into that decision. That's such a cop-out. Max, I think it's clear that the, the dogma of Antonin Scalia lives within you. So thank you all for listening this far. Uh, we're recording this today on Saturday, uh, September 16th. Uh, as many of you, I'm sure, know, yesterday the uh, Jason Stockley verdict came out uh, and he was acquitted of first-degree murder. And Ruben, I think, is going to share some thoughts uh, that I think will represent what all of us think uh, about this, I think it's safe to say, injustice. Yeah, I think all of us here are pretty upset as members of the St. Louis community going on our fourth year fourth year in this community. We all have been able to see kind of the racial injustices and the police brutality that have been a struggle for this city for some time now and that we're all deeply upset. I know Jonah and I went to some protests yesterday and... Max, Sam, if you have anything else you want to add? Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to comment on cases when you haven't gone through, sat on a jury, and, and been presented with like evidence and all that. I, I don't think that you... I, I think you need to look no further than the judges uh, 
decision, his verdict statement, where he effectively disregards evidence and says, uh, of course, this urban heroin dealer had a gun on him, um, despite all DNA evidence to the contrary. Um, just this, this blind rationalization that perpetuates systemic oppression of people of color in this country. And for the past four years since we've been at WashU, we've been, you know, that, the start, that was when uh, the Mike Brown Ferguson stuff came out. I think it's, um, I wrote this to, in a little message to people in Wooper, um, that it's, it's a very sad bookend to our college career to think that very little has changed. If you haven't been following the case, if you haven't been following the protests, especially if you're in the St. Louis area, but also if you're looking at it from outside, I really want to urge you to educate yourself on it. Um, try to understand what's going on here, what the factors at play are, and think about what you can do to help support the community that's currently in mourning. And read local news. Um, and I, I just do want to add, I've written things similar to this before, but at a certain, at a certain point, the conservative movement will not, and I think we're actually, let me say it again, I think we're far past the point where the conservative movement writ large uh, has any reasonable defense against those who claim that it is racially biased. Um, I think that this case, the Philando Castile case, the Eric Garner case, I mean, there's just so many examples of black people being summarily executed by police and the slavish authoritarian devotion that conservatives show to our police is frankly disgusting and it's, it, it's deeply disturbing to me that so many people who would theoretically identify themselves as similar to me politically simply do not care about the daily injustices who are being done to our fellow citizens who just so happen to be of a different skin color than ours. One other piece of required reading in addition to local news coverage, I know it's a few years old, but the report commissioned uh, by the Department of Justice about Ferguson and the systemic from the police department to the courts, um, the anecdotes in there are just the tip, tip of the iceberg. Um, it should be required reading for everyone in this country. Yeah. With that, I'd like to thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.